Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate, or you can go to buymeacupofcoffee slash CraigU. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20, plus you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to my username, Bairdo37. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash Canadian History X. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. And there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. Before I begin, I want to mention there's quite a few Ukrainian names in here, and I really do apologize if I mispronounce anything. I will do my best, but if anything is mispronounced, I apologize. The history of Ukrainians in Canada is a deep one, and has helped give Canada some of its most noted citizens. Ukrainians would start to arrive in the late 1800s, and today they are the 11th largest ethnic group in Canada, with 110,000 Ukrainian Canadians stating that Ukrainian was their mother tongue. As of 2016, there were 1.6 million Ukrainian Canadians, or people with Ukrainian heritage, within Canada. The arrival of Ukrainians begins long before Ukraine as a country as we know it existed. For decades, the Ukrainian people were either under the control of the Russian Empire or Austria-Hungary. There may have been some Ukrainians who arrived in the early 19th century, but the first major immigration period was from 1891 to 1914. Iwin, also known as Ivan, Pilipiu, and Wazel are considered the first two Ukrainian immigrants to Canada, arriving in 1891. During the first winter, Ivan would go back to Ukraine for their families, while Alaniuk stayed in Manitoba. Unfortunately, Ivan was wrongfully accused of sedition and fraud. He would go on trial in Austria-Hungary on May 12, 1892, and spent a month in prison. His trial would ironically generate publicity, resulting in more people wanting to go to Canada. When Ivan left for Canada once again, he was joined by seven families, and these families would settle at Josephburg, northeast of Edmonton, a hamlet that still exists to this day. Ivan would live the rest of his life east of Fort Saskatchewan, and he died a relatively rich man in 1936. Today, a subdivision in Edmonton is named for him, as is a lake in Saskatchewan. His farmhouse, the third he built, currently sits at the Ukrainian Cultural Heritage Village, just to the east of Edmonton. Five years later, Canada began to promote immigration from Eastern European farmers to settle in the Canadian West. The government wanted the land to be filled with settlers, which would bring in more commerce, railroads, and help grow the huge crops available in the prairies. Dr. Joseph Alasco and Cyril Ganek 
would be the heavily responsible for the promotion of Canada as a destination for immigrants in Ukraine. Aleskow would recommend areas for the Ukrainians to settle, helping several dozen families find places to settle in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. His literature is believed to be a major reason for the fact that the period from 1891 to 1914 had 170,000 rural Ukrainians come to Canada, mostly settling in the West. Another major reason for Ukrainian settlement was Clifford Sifton, the Minister of the Interior from 1896 to 1905. He wanted to have new agricultural immigrants come to Canada, and he saw the Ukrainians as the right people to settle. There were some around Sifton who were unhappy that he was encouraging Ukrainian immigration rather than from the United States, Scandinavia, or the United Kingdom. He would respond, quote, I think that a stalwart peasant in a sheepskin coat born in the soil, whose forefathers have been farmers for ten generations, with a stout wife and half a dozen children, is good quality, end quote. The Ukrainian settlers would settle in Ukrainian block settlements throughout Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. These rural blocks would slowly develop into communities such as Vegreville in Alberta and Kenora in Saskatchewan. Driving around rural Alberta, especially east of Edmonton, you will come across several Ukrainian churches as well. These churches are some of the most beautiful found in the prairies, and I had a chance to visit several over the summer, and I'll have various videos about those trips on my YouTube channel. During this initial wave of Ukrainian immigration, no priests came to Canada, but other denominations, such as the Methodist and Presbyterian churches, helped provide religious services for the Ukrainians. In 1918, the Ukrainian Greek Orthodox Church would be established in Canada, eventually becoming the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Ukrainians would also begin to enter the political world a short time after they arrived. In Alberta, with its strong Ukrainian-Canadian population, it is no surprise that Andrew Shandro became the first Ukrainian elected to provincial legislature. Shandro had arrived in Canada in 1899 with his parents and had begun work as a federal homestead inspector in 1907. Shandro would serve in the legislature from 1913 to 1922. Various organizations were formed around this time in Canada as well, including the Ukrainian Labour Farmer Temple Association, the Ukrainian Catholic Brotherhood, and the Ukrainian Self-Reliance League. Unfortunately for new Ukrainian Canadians, the First World War would begin in 1914, and that ended the first phase of Ukrainian immigration. Ukrainian Canadians were classified as enemy aliens, even though over 10,000 Ukrainian Canadians fought for Canada, including Philip Konowal, who would be awarded the Victoria Cross. The Ukrainian Canadians, who had been deemed enemy aliens under the War Measures Act, amounting to about 80,000 people, were forced to report to the police on a regular basis. They had to carry government-issued identity papers at all times, and anyone who came to Canada after 1903 would lose their right to vote in federal elections. Ukrainian Canadians also tended to vote liberal in elections, and the ruling Conservatives, or Union Government as it was called at the time, was able to eliminate all of those votes by preventing Ukrainian Canadians from having their voice heard at the polls. I actually looked at the 1917 election where a lot of people lost their right to vote on my other podcast, From John to Justin, so be sure to check it out. Of the 80,000, 5,000, nearly all of them Ukrainian men, were put into camps where they were forced to work and often had meager food. Many landmarks, including Banff National Park, owe their existence to these men taken from their homes simply for the Ukrainian heritage. During the First World War, Munson was the site of a Ukrainian-Canadian internment camp where anyone deemed an enemy alien was housed. Those who were kept at the camp were put to work on the railway, and at the camp the structures were simply railway cars that had been set up. Unlike other internment camps, the one near Munson was set up late in the war, on October 13, 1918. The camp was only open for a brief period of time before it was moved to Eaton, Saskatchewan on February 25, 1919, 
although some sources say March 21st, 1919. The time the camp was open unfortunately also coincided with the Spanish flu and one of the men in the camp would die of the disease in November of 1918. There was also a camp located near what is today Capacassing, Ontario, which would house 1,300 German and Ukrainian prisoners. At the camp, prisoners were kept active in construction of buildings, clearing the land for an experimental farm, and harvesting the ample timber in the area. The camp was so isolated that there was little in the way of fences, and the only access to the location was via the railroad that had been built through earlier. For those who worked at the camp, they would often deal with mosquitoes that tormented them in the summer heat, while the winter they dealt with the terrible cold. Of course, even though it was isolated, that didn't stop some from trying to escape. On December 18, 1917, three men decided to escape from the camp, intending to catch a train to Cochrane to at least get away from the camp for a few days. At 2 p.m. on that day, a prisoner slipped across the cleared perimeter into the woods when two guards had their backs turned. Five minutes later, as snow fell, two others took advantage of getting away. At 3.20 p.m. during regular roll call, it was found that three prisoners were missing. Four guards were dispatched to look for tracks. At 3.30 p.m., a trail of footprints heading to the west was found. At 4.45 p.m., darkness forced some of the searchers to return to the camp, while others continued on in their search for the prisoners. At 8.10 p.m., searchers once again departed from the camp with lights and retraced steps that they followed until dusk. At 12.30 a.m., the escapees were caught and returned to their cells. In August of 1917, the prisoners would briefly strike due to the hard schedule they were forced to work and their isolation from families and their homes elsewhere in Canada. On May 5, 1920, the camp was officially cleared and closed, and the buildings were sold to tender and demolished by a Toronto company. Today, a small cemetery is all that remains of the camp, which is where victims of the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic were buried. At another camp, the internees were mostly Ukrainian-Canadians who were forced off their land simply because they had immigrated from a country that was allied with the Germans in the war. Rather than be identified as Ukrainians, the newspaper simply called them Austrians and Germans. At the camp, there was a total of 63 internees. The Kingston British Whig would report, quote, As these men are interned as undesirables, the popular feeling is that they should be deported as soon as the internment camps are broken up, end quote. The Edmonton Journal would print a story on August 22, 1917, stating that the Ukrainians in Vegerville, east of Edmonton, were looking to revolt against the government. The story stated, quote, The statement is made that a number of agitators are at work among the Ukrainian population with a view of inciting them to revolt against necessary measures taken by the government to preserve the security of the country, end quote. The Ukrainians in Vegerville were then advised to work quietly and peacefully, to behave themselves, and to hold no public meetings. And it's likely that there were a few people who were unhappy with the War Measures Act and the limits it put on their lives, but it's unlikely that anybody was trying to overthrow the government. Even though the government did seem to be against the Ukrainian people, many citizens were on their side. One letter to the editor published on October 23, 1918 would state, quote, One greatest injustice that is being done to the Ukrainians by the English-speaking public is the fact that they are branded as enemies of their own adopted country, in other words, they are accused of being pro-Austrians and pro-Germans, while the fact is that the Ukrainians have groaned under the Austrian yoke long before any Allied countries were even aware of the unjust autocratic government in that empire. End quote. During the trying times of the First World War, Ukrainians would often come together to help each other, even as the government seemed to want to do everything they could to not help. In late 1917, it was announced that a Ukrainian college was going to be built in Saskatoon, but it would cost $100,000 to build, no small amount at the time. At a meeting of Ukrainians held at the Daylight Theatre in the city, 
$10,000 was raised in only one hour for the college. Three farmers would give $1,000 each. To put that in perspective, today that $1,000 would amount to about $20,000 today. Another four farmers gave $500 each to the cause. Ukrainians also took to the land very quickly at this time, which surprised the government. One inspector named Wazel Simitsyn was tasked with visiting farms to see the social needs of the Ukrainian settlements. The Manitoba Free Press Prairie Farmer would write, quote, They are, he says, progressing very fast. But for one or two poor years, such as 1913 and 1914, they could by now, he thinks, have paid all of their indebtedness for land, machinery, and stock. As it is, he believes the average liabilities of the Ukrainian farmers is not more than $500 for all these things. End quote. The same report found that Ukrainians wanted their children to get better education and to attend high school. They also wanted their children to be able to speak their mother tongue for at least an hour each day at school. The Prairie Farmer continues, quote, There is no anti-Canadian or revolutionary propaganda going on as far as he was aware, and he felt sure that the people would never dream of pressing their requests in any but legitimate and peaceful ways. End quote. In Saskatoon in December of 1917, a convention of Ukrainians was held, some calling it the largest such gathering of Ukrainians in Canadian history. Ukrainians voted in favor of having the responsibilities of British citizenship. Joseph Mega, the chairman, would say, quote, I want to assure our English-speaking friends that this is not a Bolshevik gathering and that we do not aim at sectionalism or racial nationalism, but we are striving to cooperate among ourselves and with our English-speaking citizens towards the educational uplift of our younger generation. We gather here as Canadians, always true to our new country and loyal to the British Empire. End quote. While some Ukrainians were allowed to work at regular jobs for private companies by 1917, Ukrainian internment would continue until June 20, 1920, nearly two years after the First World War ended. Throughout Canada, there are several memorials dedicated to the Ukrainian internees who were taken from their land, including on the grounds of the Manitoba Legislative Building, at Banff National Park, in Capacassing, Ontario, and at Spirit Lake, Quebec. On August 24, 2005, Prime Minister Paul Martin recognized Ukrainian-Canadian internment as a dark chapter in Canadian history. He pledged $2.5 million to fund memorials and educational exhibits, but this funding was never provided. On May 9, 2008, Bill C-331 was passed under the government of Prime Minister Stephen Harper, which established the $10 million Canadian First World War Internment Recognition Fund. The interest used on this payment funds projects that commemorate the experience of Ukrainians and other Europeans during their internments. After the war, a new generation of Ukrainians began to integrate themselves into the political atmosphere of Canada. Michael Lukovich, who was born in America but came to Canada with his family, would become the first person of Ukrainian heritage to be elected to Parliament in 1926. Representing the Vegreville riding, he quickly became the voice of people of Ukrainian descent. He would speak out against discrimination, making him very popular among Ukrainian Canadians. He would serve until 1935 when he became a founding member of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, which today is the new Democratic Party. In 1923, the Immigration Act was modified to allow former subjects of the Austrian Empire to immigrate to Canada once again. After this, immigration once again picked up. Between 1923 and 1939, 70,000 Ukrainians came to Canada, many of them veterans of the war looking for a better life. Most of the immigration came in the late 1920s and early 1930s, before the Great Depression decreased the flow of immigration. During the interwar years, Ukrainians would establish several organizations including the Ukrainian Labor Farmer Temple Association and the Ukrainian Catholic Brotherhood. They would also begin to settle in new areas of the prairies. 
By the time the 1920s came along, most of the land had been taken in the southern and central prairies. In places such as northern Alberta, there was still ample land available, though. When you look at the records of the Immigration Hall in Spirit River, Alberta, you will find over 200 people who came to Spirit River to start their new lives in just a few years from 1928 to 1930. Only five people, Fred Robick, D.M. Zakuski, William Batan, M. Shemko, and F. Kozeki, came in 1927 during the first wave into the area. By 1928, a couple dozen Ukrainians arrived in the area, which only increased in 1929 to several more dozen. The year 1930 would be the biggest year for immigration into the area before records stop at the end of that year. Of those Ukrainians, every single one, apart from the wives and children, listed their occupation as farmer. One interesting aspect of these records is that the majority of Ukrainians did not come with their families, but came alone or with brothers, often to begin work on the land and establish it. Once the homestead was up and running, their families would come out, but that would take years. Other than children, the youngest person to arrive was William Wisnick, who came with his father, Michael, when he was 18 in 1928. It wasn't just the young who arrived, though. John Solanini came to Spirit River at the age of 54, while Steve Wojciech arrived a month later when he was 59. The oldest in those few years was Anton Holick, who arrived alone in April 1930 when he was 63. For those early Ukrainian homesteaders, it was at times a lonely existence, and that was why being able to find someone from your homeland near you was so important and why so many organizations were created. After the Second World War, with the Soviet Union taking over vast areas of Eastern Europe, Ukrainians began to come to Canada once again. From 1947 to 1954, 34,000 Ukrainians came here. During that third era of immigration for Ukrainians, most settled not in the prairies as it happened before, but in Ontario. This new wave of immigrants would establish many more organizations that exist to this day, including the League of Ukrainian Canadians, Plast Canada, and the Ukrainian Canadian Professional and Business Federation. By this point, Ukrainian Canadians were also making major inroads into Canadian politics at every level. In 1952, Michael Starr, the former mayor of Oshawa, Ontario, was elected to Parliament and he would serve until 1967. During that time, he was named the Minister of Labour from 1957 to 1963, becoming the first person of Ukrainian heritage to hold a federal cabinet post. For two months following the resignation of John Diefenbaker, Starr was also the first person of Ukrainian heritage to serve as the leader of the opposition. Throughout his life, Starr worked with ethnic groups and minorities and helped to build the policy of old-age pensions for the Progressive Conservative Party. Starr would save his appointment in cabinet, quote, There are no second-class citizens in the Diefenbaker government, and complete representation of all races is the aim of Mr. Diefenbaker, end quote. In 1955, William Michael Wall was appointed to the Canadian Senate, becoming the first person of Ukrainian heritage to achieve that honour. Prior to this appointment, he had served with the Canadian Army during the Second World War, rising to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. At 44, he was one of the youngest senators in Canadian history to that point, and he would serve until 1962 when he passed away. In 1964, Senator Paul Yuzik began to champion the idea of multiculturalism. This would lead to the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism and debates with Ukrainian leaders. Ukrainians felt that the English-French biculturalism would deny the contribution of other cultures to Canada. As a result of this, Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau would shift Canada towards a policy of official multiculturalism. Today, Yuzik is known as the father of multiculturalism. Immigration would begin to slow in the subsequent decades with only 10,000 Ukrainians arriving from the 1970s to the 1980s. 
but things would start to increase in 2001, and for the next 15 years, 40,000 Ukrainians came to Canada. Now it would be remiss of me not to talk about a very famous structure that represents Ukrainians in Canada. In 1976, Vegerville, a community with a deep Ukrainian history, would create one of the most famous roadside attractions in Canada, the Pasanka. The art of wax-resist egg decoration dates back to the pre-Christian era, and eggs decorated by Ukrainians featured nature symbols that became part of spring rituals. They worshipped a god named Dazbo, and birds were one of his creations. Humans could not catch the birds, but they could obtain their eggs, which were seen as sources of life. The egg was then honoured in spring festivals as a rebirth of the earth as the long winter was over. When Christianity spread into the area, the egg became the symbol not of the rebirth of nature, but the rebirth of man. The art of the Pasanka then travelled to North America via Ukrainian immigrants, including to Ukrainian settlements like Vegerville. The egg would get its start thanks to the Alberta Century Celebrations Committee that was coordinating the centennial celebrations of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to be held in 1974, honouring the 100th anniversary of the March West by the Northwest Mounted Police. The committee was tasked with distributing funds to communities to build a monument to the RCMP. For Vegerville, this meant that the Vegerville and District Chamber of Commerce would take up the challenge, and while many suggestions came in, the most popular was a giant pasanka to symbolize the peace and security the Mounties offered the area during those early years. Designed by Paul Sambaliak, an artist who was born in the Vegerville area, and Professor Ron Resch from the University of Utah, who was tasked with creating the pasanka, which required the development of new computer programs. This was no simple Easter egg. The egg would feature 524 star patterns, 2,208 equilateral triangles, 3,512 visible faucets, 6,978 nuts and bolts, and 177 internal struts. All of this would come together to not only form arguably one of the most famous roadside attractions in the province, but an artistic masterpiece that has the distinction of accomplishing nine mathematical architectural and engineering firsts, and its designs represent the first computer modeling of an egg. In all, the egg measures 25.7 feet long, 18 feet wide, and is 31 feet high. The base it sits on is 27,000 pounds and it turns in the wind like a weather vane. I did an entire video on my visit to see the egg on my YouTube channel, so check it out. The link is in my show notes. The Pasanka is colored bronze, silver, and gold, with each color representing something. The bronze color represents the good earth of the area, the gold star symbolizes life and good fortune, and the three-pointed stars alternating in gold and silver represent devotion to the faith of the ancestors. In addition, the band of silver has no beginning or end and represents eternity, and while the gold and silver windmills with six veins and points symbolize the rich harvest of the area. As for the silver wolf's teeth, that represents the protection and security of the pioneers by the RCMP. It was such a noble achievement that Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip would visit the egg during a cross-country tour. Another amazing fact is that the software used to guide the lasers to cut the Pasanka's tiles would be purchased by NASA and used for cutting exterior tiles on the space shuttle. Even though school has started, summer memories are still in everyone's mind. Although many interesting things happened, two events stand out as unusual and even record-breaking. The completion of Canada's gigantic new tourist attraction in Alberta and the number of people trying to swim Lake Ontario. Vegerville, Alberta is the home of our newest tourist attraction, the largest Ukrainian Easter egg in the world. That's 25 feet and 3,000 pounds of man-made egg. 
people of Vagerville and the computers of the University of Utah have been at this project for almost two years. The town has a predominantly Ukrainian background and it wanted to salute the RCMP on its centennial, a sort of thank you for the security the force provided when this land was first settled. What better way than a giant pizenka, a committee decided, the colorful Easter egg that's so much a part of Ukrainian tradition. The design was an enormous mathematical problem that took computers almost a year and a half to solve, together with 12,000 man-hours. It was ready for dedication to the opening day of the Vagreville Fair, all 3,000 pounds of it, more than 25 feet long and 18 feet wide. In the words of the people who built it, the great Pizenka combines the ancient traditions of one of Alberta's largest ethnic groups with breakthroughs in modern science, thus linking heritage and progress. One of the officials who took part in the ceremony noted the attention that the project had already received and noted that tourists, awestruck by its size, are moved to remark, I'd sure love to see the chicken. In 1990, Ray Natishin was appointed as the first person of Ukrainian heritage to be Governor General of Canada. Born and educated in Saskatchewan, where his father John would become the first Ukrainian-born senator in 1959, Natishin served in the Second World War with the Air Force and was then elected to the House of Commons in 1974. As Governor General, he established the Governor General's Performing Arts Award and founded the International Council for Canadian Studies. He would also make a state visit to Ukraine in 1992, less than a year after he became an independent country. For a man known for his informality, it was a day of extraordinary pomp and ceremony. The day the jovial and down-to-earth Rainetician became His Excellency, the Queen's representative in Canada. Politicians, diplomats, and dignitaries packed the Senate chamber to witness Natitian swearing in as Canada's 24th Governor-General. You do swear that you will well and truly serve Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II? I do. So help you God. Then, after the firing of a 21-gun salute outside, Prime Minister Mulroney officially welcomed Natitian to his new position, saying he personifies the aspirations of all Canadians. As a distinguished lawyer, as a second-generation Canadian, you know firsthand the difficulties which has caused you to become an advocate of tolerance, a champion of national reconciliation. And you know this country, and you understand and admire her people. Seated on the throne, beside his wife Gerda, Natitian pledged to use his position to strengthen the sense of community among Canadians. The Governor-General belongs to the people of Canada, not to any one linguistic, cultural, or economic group, but to all Canadians. Much of the speech was delivered in a passable French, an indication of how hard Natitian has worked recently to overcome one of his biggest handicaps as Governor-General, his previous lack of any fluency in the language. There were words in Ukrainian, too, a proud moment for his mother as he talked of how his Ukrainian ancestors always felt at home in Canada. The installation over, Natitian was back to his cheerful self, emerging from Parliament to receive his first royal salute. Then the first of what will become countless inspections of the guard. Top hat and tails, and all the other trappings of his vice-regal office, aren't likely to stop Ray Natitian bringing a populist flavor to Rideau Hall 
and just possibly a new vitality to an old institution. David Halton, CBC News, Ottawa. In 1991, Roy Romanow became the Premier of Saskatchewan and the first person of Ukrainian heritage to serve as the Premier of a province. He would serve as Premier until 2001, and he was courted by the Liberal Party to run for federal office, but he would become the Chancellor of the University of Saskatchewan instead. It was a jubilant Roy Romano who emerged to speak to ecstatic supporters in Saskatoon tonight, promising to rebuild Saskatchewan. It will take a lot of hard work, a lot of tough decisions, and a little bit of luck, but I'm confident that we, the people of Saskatchewan, can do it. We shall do it. We shall overcome our obstacles and rebuild. The NDP leader swept into power with a huge majority, decimating the former Tory government. But it was an upbeat and relatively optimistic Grant Devine who addressed his supporters in his rural riding of Estevan. He promised them he would be an effective opposition leader. I will be the same in opposition as I was in government. I have high expectations for the government of Saskatchewan to be able to stick up for people in all corners of the province. The final results tonight, the NDP won 56 seats. And the total vote told the story of how unpopular the Tories have become in this province. The NDP secured 51%, almost equal to an opinion poll released a week ago. The Tories were left with 26, and the Liberals close behind at 24, indicating what Grant Devine feared, a split in the free enterprise vote. At one point in the 1990s, the premiers of Manitoba and Saskatchewan and the Governor-General were all of Ukrainian descent. The descendants of the first Ukrainian Canadians have left their mark on Canada in many ways. And to finish off this episode, I'm going to list a few people of Ukrainian descent who have had their mark on Canada. Seth Rogen, William Shatner, Alex Trebek, Mike Bossy, Johnny Bauer, Wayne Gretzky, Dale Howardchuk, Terry Sawchuk, Paul Brandt, Dr. Roberta Bondar, Christia Freeland, Rona Ambrose, Ed Stelmack, Randy Bachman, and Chantel Kreviadzik. I hope you enjoyed that special episode on Ukrainians in Canada. And tomorrow, we're going to be looking at Joan Bamford Fletcher, a very badass nurse from the Second World War. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from the Canadian Encyclopedia, Saskatoon Daily Star, Montreal Gazette, Wikipedia, Vancouver Province, Calgary Herald, Saskatoon Star Phoenix, Winnipeg Free Press, and the Edmonton Journal. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.